0: The love of popularity is one of the natural desires of us all. We all share the horror of loneliness, of the longing to belong. And so we have this desire for popularity, not necessarily to be the life of the party or the most popular person in town, but the desire to be accepted, to be included, the desire to be wanted, at the very least not to be excluded Uh, Do you remember the terrible practice at childhood in the uh, playground, in the schoolyard, when they were trying to select two teams and there'd be two captains out the front and they'd pick people one after another and they'd, they'd pick the most popular that they wanted first and then you got left until in the end there was only one or two left and they said, oh, it doesn't matter, join whichever team because frankly, you are no good at the game, we don't like you, we don't want you. But it was to be left as the last person selected especially if neither team wanted you. It was one of the worst states of life to be in, better not to play the game than to be left as the last that no one wants. That is, we have this natural desire to be want to be part of the crowd. Now, you can Christianise this desire in the desire for a full church, to want to be part of a great movement, central to our nation or our culture or our city with large numbers of important people, possibly, involved with us. That is, we don't want to be part of a marginalised, despised minority group. To be admired, to be respected by society, to be a central pillar of society, that's the kind of movement we want to be involved with, rather than something that uh, causes people to laugh and spurn us. It's so easy to want Christianity to be a great movement, which improves society and is recognized by all for its virtue and its power for good and its importance. And don't you hate it when people speak ill of Christianity or the church? or When you read those negative press reports ridiculing and rejecting us and making much of our declining numbers, though never actually referring to the fact that newspapers are declining at a faster rate than church, And that they've been going out of business at a faster rate than we have. They don't don't mention that bit, they just always like mentioning our declining numbers and it's always an uncomfortable feeling. Jesus was addressing the disciple situation when he gave the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, 7 of Matthew's Gospel. We're coming up to the end of it and to the climax of the sermon but to some extent we need to go back and pick up the pick up the thrust of what the whole sermon is about now to see the impact of this sermon as a whole. You see, they were fishermen, the disciples, and in chapter 4, he calls them from fishing to fish for men. And they leave all, they leave their boats, their nets, their family, to follow Jesus as he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. And at the end of chapter 4, there's this incredible account of the crowds who gathered from all over Palestine to meet Jesus and to hear Jesus, to come for the healings and for the exorcisms that he was involved in. Huge crowds that effectively placed the fishermen at the very forefront of a new national movement of the people of God, a populist movement that would assure them the disciples of popularity For Jesus was extraordinarily successful, it would seem, in fishing for men. But the disciples needed to be warned of the false impressions of crowds. So we read in chapter 5, verse 1, at the beginning of the sermon, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them what got Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount was a magnificent sight of all the crowds because that magnificent sight was profoundly deceptive and he needed to warn his disciples about it. For the crowds weren't following the suffering servant, the crowds weren't gathered to to take up their cross and follow Jesus, they didn't come because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven had come the crowds were there for the miracles they were there for the healings and the exorcisms they weren't there to repent of their sins and find forgiveness Jesus hadn't succeeded because he was popular that actually wasn't success at all he was going to succeed when they called out to him crucify, crucify him He was going to succeed when everybody had forsaken him, even his father, as he gave up his spirit on the cross. That's where he was going to succeed, not when he grew huge crowds. The disciples couldn't understand this. They wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in all his glory and power when he came in his kingdom. They didn't understand the way of the cross. They hadn't even heard about that yet. And they didn't understand, therefore, that success with the crowds was deception, a really deceptive popularity. So we see Jesus teaching them of persecution and rejection. Reminding them of the prophets of old who were hated and reviled. Chapter 5 verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in, the, in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The blessing of the apostles, the blessing of the disciples was persecution and rejection. For true citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is not about power and miracles. True citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is not about popularity and world movements. It's not about success in our mission. That's not true citizenship. True citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is about being spiritually transformed. True citizenship is about that spiritual transformation to a godly life that fulfills the law and the prophets, doing the the God-glorifying good works, the the good works that will bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this true citizenship is where you will stand out like salt and light, and a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, unmistakably touched by the hand of God, and hated by the world of sinfulness. True citizenship is very, very different to their expectations, and so in the bulk of the sermon from chapter 5 verse 17 through to where we left last week, chapter 6 verse 12, Jesus expounds the law and the prophets to help them understand true citizenship. So we have the the context of the sermon on the mount chapter 4 verse 18 through to chapter 5 verse 1 calling the fishermen the huge crowds seeing the crowds teaching the disciples we have the introduction to the sermon from chapter 5 verse 2 through to 5:16 saying persecution because of changed life is the character of it we have the body of the sermon on the mount chapter 5 verse 17 all the way through chapter 6 chapter 7 up to verse 12, expounding the law and the prophets, how your life will be transformed, what it will be like to keep the law and the prophets from the heart, not just externally like the Pharisees do. And now we come to today's passage, which is the climax of the sermon. Here is the point, here is where the rubber hits the road in the sermon towards the end. Jesus has, been, has spoken of making true judgments The judgments of the law and the prophets, the treating of others as you would have them treat you, not the hypocritical judgments that find speck in other people's eyes in order to justify yourself, even though there's a log in your own eye, nor the foolish judgment of giving pearls to pigs and what is holy to dogs. Now he provides the choice for the disciples, and it's what we would call the binary choice, the choice of two. The two ways, the two prophets, and the two judgments. Firstly, the two ways. Chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Here is the choice for the disciples. The choice of two ways to travel in life. The first is the popular path that leads to destruction. The gate is wide and the way is really easy and those who enter by it are sadly many. The whole world living in our Father Adam's house and following our Father Adam's way is heading for destruction. And the way the world travels, it's all so easy to get caught up in the crowds, to think and act as if it's normal and it's right to be sinful. It requires no moral fortitude to go with a crowd. It requires no intellectual rigor to go with a crowd. It requires no personal strength of character, no turning back. You just do what everybody else is doing it's quite different to the unpopular path where the gate is very narrow and the way is difficult that leads to life and there are very few who find that way for it's not the popular path to walk it's not just that the destination is different destruction or life It's not just that the beginning is different, the narrow gate as opposed to the broad, open, wide gate. It's not just that the the route is different, one is easy, the other is hard. It's that the number of followers are different. Many will be on the easy road, very few will be on the hard. Remember, he's saying it to them because he saw the crowds and then he calls the disciples and says few there will be on the way do not believe rejoice in the crowds that's not what it's about it's about being transformed Jesus is not so much presenting a choice between two ways he's presenting a challenge to follow the hard Narrow, unpopular way. For if the disciples are to dwell in the kingdom of heaven, to fish for men, they must choose the path that leads to life, the narrow, the hard, the unpopular way. And so Jesus warns them of the two prophets, or more accurately, should I say, uh, the two kinds of prophets. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from a thorn bush or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them. their fruits. The true prophet is like a healthy tree, bringing forth good fruit. He is recognized by his prophecy. That's the fruit of a prophet, is his prophecy. He won't be teaching against the law of God, he won't be encouraging people to sinfulness, he won't be predicting things to come true that don't come true, he won't be calling us away from the God of Moses, The true prophet is persecuted and hated in his time be it Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Amos or Hosea they're all hated that's the character they are unpopular people one of the characteristics of being a prophet is being unpopular that doesn't mean you choose a prophet because he's already unpopular It's his prophecy that leads to his unpopularity, not his unpopularity that leads to him being a prophet. Do not rejoice in the fact that you are a weirdo that no one likes, but rejoice in the fact that you're a prophet whom people do not like because of your prophecy. And the true prophet is like that. Popularity is not the calling card of the true prophet. So the challenge is to beware of the false prophet the one who by the very nature of his activity will always come deceptively, he has to, if he comes as a false prophet, no one's going to pay attention to him, he's always got to come as a true prophet for people to pay attention to him. Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on the door, I've yet to meet a Christian person who's become a Jehovah's Witness, anyone who knows their Bible, Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. You know that it's false before you start the conversation. Never gets off the ground. People who do not know anything about Christianity, they are affected by it. But the the Jehovah's Witness comes with a brand name on him, like the Mormons. Exactly the same. They all come there. Elder Smith, Elder Jones. You ever noticed how young the elders are in Mormonism? That's one of my questions. I always ask them, "Are you an elder?" They say, "Yes." And I say, "Who are you older than? You're not older than me. Are you my elder?" (laughs) It's a very strange thing to call the young man an elder, especially when he's 19, there's a missionary and doesn't know what he's talking about. But they come clearly and manifest and no one's much persuaded by them. They're not our problem ones. No, no, the problem ones are the ones who come deceptively. For they're the ones coming in finest sheep's clothing who are actually the ravenous wolves. The true prophet never needs fine clothing for he's wrapped in the mantle of truth. It's the false prophet who needs the fine clothing, the signs and symbols of public acceptance and respectability, the titles that we bestow, reverend, very reverend, right reverend, venerable, most reverend, the degrees we confer upon them, you know the bachelor of divinity, the master of theology, the, the doctor of philosophy, it's the It's the seats of honour we reserve for them, the the robes of royal splendour, the processions in which we parade. It's the garments of the false prophets that declare the impeccable ecclesiastical credentials of an Anglican minister or the academic credentials of the finest universities. Have you noticed what silly robes we get them dressed up in and silly hats we ponce on their heads? But they tell you nothing. All that paraphernalia tells you nothing about the truth of the teaching that proceeds from their mouth. In fact, the more you see the sheep's clothing, the more you should be on your guard about the quality of the prophet. Or we can be more modern in our sheep's clothing, of course. We we, we speak about this person, you've got to listen to him because he's published several books and he's spoken at several international conferences and has tv shows that he appears upon as the great tele-evangelist and he's very impressive to people and notice the wonderful straight white teeth he has the perfect unblemished skin the magnificent symmetrical facial features here is the person that you have to listen to it's just sheep's clothing friends beware Anything that will give credibility will be sought after by the false prophets. Anything that will make them popular is necessary for their desire to speak what is wrong. And woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when those in the media who hate the name of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ speak well of you. When you see the media in Australia especially the the media down at Fairfax or the media in the ABC, telling you what a wonderful minister this is, you almost by definition know he's not. Because if the godless think he's wonderful, then it's very unlikely that he's speaking the truth of God's word. These false prophets are not harmless. They turn people away from God as they turn people away from the truth. They're ravenous wolves destroying lives and families. Now while in a free society we must respect their right to speak and as Christians we should not seek to censor or or in any way prohibit them from speaking. It's very important that anything can be spoken because that's how we know the truth. Because if that's the best the lies can come up with then the truth stands firm. But at the same time we Christians should not be slow to speak against them, to show their falsehood and to protect the community by revealing their true nature. For prophets, like the rest of us, will face the two judgments. Verse 21, top of page 980. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. that day many will say to me Lord Lord didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness I've long thought that these are some of the most terrible verses in the whole Bible they're words that I would hope you never hear, I hope I never hear, addressed to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't imagine a worse moment than come to the judgment day and have the Lord Jesus Christ say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I I don't think there are worse words in the Bible than those ones, there may be, but hard-pressed to think what they could be you see there is an entry into the kingdom of heaven and it's found by those who do the will of the father who is in heaven Jesus doesn't spell out everything about this doing my father's will in the sermon on the mount he's yet to struggle in the garden of Gethsemane where he prays not my will but your will be done He's yet to give his life for the salvation of mankind paying the price for our failure to do God's will and therefore opening up mercy and forgiveness of God to all who would turn back and ask. But the fundamental fact is still true that the way into heaven is to do the will of Jesus Father. Heaven is not a liberal anarchy where everybody does whatever they want to do Heaven is the kingdom of God where God's will will be done and all will serve in perfect harmony and unity. You can't enter heaven as a rebel. You can't enter heaven opposed to the kingdom of heaven and opposed to the king of heaven. And you can't enter heaven declaring your autonomy and your independence. The way into the kingdom of heaven is to do the will of the father. It's called submission. I know that's a dirty word you're not allowed to use in our public society anymore. The media is against it. It is the word that causes more trouble than any other word. It's just the word necessary for all or any who want to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must submit to your Father in heaven. So, to the disciples there is this great warning of the departure from the presence of God were those awful words, I never knew you. Depart from me. Many will come on that day claiming the name of God. Many. But they are not there. You see, it's in the face of the huge crowds. Jesus is saying many are going to come who will actually be told to depart. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? They have done mighty works like Jesus did in Galilee. They have preached great sermons like Jesus did by the Sea of Galilee. They have exorcised demons like Jesus did amongst the Galileans. But they haven't done the will of the Father who is in heaven. They haven't kept the law from their heart. They haven't sought God's kingdom and his righteousness. You may never preach a great sermon. You may never exorcise anybody. You may never do a great miracle. Relax. None of those things are critical about entering the kingdom of heaven. What? is required is what actually we can under the spirit of God do that is do the will of our father who is in heaven seek to live by the law of God that is what we can do that is what is required of us to do but people always think that's kind of unimportant stuff whereas a good miracle now that's powerful I mean how could you be assured that you're in the kingdom of heaven by the fact that Jesus has died for your sins or the fact that you have actually raised the dead yourself it's not by the fact that you've raised the dead yourself or that you've healed the cancer or that you've preached to a thousand people none of that is what matters that you're forgiven by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and have been changed by the spirit of God to want to do God's will that is the great miracle. That is the work of the kingdom of heaven. Here is the false impressions that the crowds and the popularity of Jesus must be driven from the disciples' minds. They're entering into this work and they're seeing the wrong thing. And Three chapters are given to get rid of this wrong thing from their head. Fishing for men isn't about doing miracles and healings. Isn't about gathering huge crowds to hear sermons. Isn't about popularity. Not that any of those things are wrong, but that's not what it's about. Fishing for men is about doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. It's about hallowed be your name. It's about your kingdom come. It's about your will done on earth as in heaven. That's our prayer. That's our desire. That's our priority. And so there'll be many who have been engaged in the Christian mission that have preached Christ and been used greatly in miracles and exorcisms only to be told by Jesus on that last day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't say they haven't preached the sermons or they haven't done the miracles. They haven't done the exorcisms. He accepts that they have. But they're still not his. I never knew you. Will you be amongst them? Will I be amongst them? What awful words our Saviour said. And so we are making choices. The same choices that the disciples made actually. Jesus gave warning to the disciples for in the face of the popularity of his ministry they would be easily confused about the nature of the kingdom of heaven and about the nature of entry into the kingdom of heaven and about the nature of fishing for men. If I am preaching like a prophet and doing the miracles of the kingdom surely I must be in the kingdom of heaven. No. There are false prophets and they also come in the name of the Lord Jesus and they also do marvellous miracles for there's no better Merino lamb's wool covering over a false prophet than a first-class miracle. The true sign of being in the kingdom of heaven is not the popularity or the success of your ministry but your obedience to the will of my heavenly Father expressed in his law given by Moses. And so the disciples are told in verse 11 of chapter 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets of old. And you see now in verse 21 of chapter 7 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so, friends, let me ask you with whom will you be popular? Beware of being accepted in this sinful and corrupt world. It's not pleasant to be unaccepted, to be marginalised, to be ridiculed, to be laughed at. It's never, it's never comfortable, it's never pleasant. But it's far, far more important to be popular with God than to be popular with man. And if you're popular with God, you can rest assured you're not going to be popular with man. So get used to the idea now. you get caught in a terrible internal controversy if you seek to be popular with God and popular with man at the same time it's like serving two masters you cannot do it just like you cannot love God and money you cannot love God and popularity so choose you yourselves friends carefully whom you will serve but as for me and my house I will choose the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he didn't pull any punches when he preached to his disciples so many years ago, but could warn them clearly about the great folly of popularity in the service of God. And so, Father, we pray that each one of us here might see that folly clearly and understand the cost of serving you and rejoice with the prophets of old in the rejection of mankind of us because of our love for you. Help us each one, Father, to so serve you that we may indeed fish for men and women, bring them into the kingdom of heaven, because of the transformed lives that we now live to your praise and to your glory. And we ask this through the one who makes it even possible, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.